You're listening to Shalise's Podcast. Hey, everybody. I am here with one of my favorites. And if you've been a part of my ministry following me or you're a graduate from Emerge or participate in our graduate programs, then you know that uh, I have very high esteem for my friend, John Crowder. We use his books in uh, my programs, and I have been enjoying his ministry and been impacted by his ministry now for goodness got well over a decade for sure and so welcome to my podcast john yeah thanks Lisa. appreciate you having me it's fun to be here for sure and i'm excited to have you here so that we can pick your brain on what i feel like is a really hot topic in the body of christ i know um i and a bunch of my graduates just joined you on a cruise back i guess it was february was it february Were we go in february i think it was yeah, we joined John on well, Detoxing from Religion Cruise, and it was an awesome time with John and C. Baxter Kruger, and just an incredible time in the gospel. And it spurred me to want to have John on our podcast because I wanted to talk about some hot topics. And in my opinion, there's nobody that unpacks hot topics better than John Crowder. And so I today wanted to tackle and have a really great conversation around the hot topic of deconstruction. At least that's kind of the popular term that people call it, which is really about detoxing from religion and really undoing what I heard John say here just a few moments ago before we hopped on here about idolatrous views of God and really just wrong views of God and Wanted to also talk about some of the pitfalls of deconstruction and how sometimes it leads to honestly deconversion and people land into a pit over here where not only do they deconstruct from bad ideas about God, but they deconstruct from good ideas about God. And I love, and we'll kick it off today, John, with your, I love what you talk about when you talk about that everyone has a theology, that everyone has a belief about God. So why don't you just kick it off with maybe your opening thoughts on deconstruction and and theology and why it's important that we have have a conversation about deconstruction since it seems to be kind of the hot word that everybody's talking about these days. And what does it really mean? And why is it important? And why is it happening? And some of those kinds of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, we were just saying right at the beginning, it, it is such a, a polarizing topic. It's like it's, it's come to the forefront as, as one of these sort of buzzwords these days where you're either for deconstruction or deconstruction is you know, the, the, from the pit of hell and, and it, cause it affects our fundamentalism or whatever. And, and it's a, it's, it's such a nuanced discussion that we, we have, you know, we love to break into camps and okay, what are we for? Are we for this? Are we against that? And that's why every, everything in America is just so, especially like from our politics and, and, re, and re, religion, there's just so much monetized outrage and, and the, the ideological, you, you know, um, yeah, the polarization that's going on, and so and it's a shame that that word um, is is so polarizing because what happens is you're either fully deconstructing everything, you're so for it that you you just end up in relativism and there is no truth, and, and or or um, you, you know what, what else? Are you if you if you if you have no deconstruction, we also had no reformation because that was a deconstruction movement, right? And so um, C.S. Lewis he he says. Um, that God is the great iconoclast. You know, He's the great idol smasher, right? Uh, and, and he says that's one of the very marks of his presence is this 
this uh, tearing down of what is not him. But that's not to say that we can't talk about him because Jesus is the positive declaration of who God is. Uh, but but even to go here, just to your initial question there before I ramble on, um, yeah, like everybody does have a theology. And, and it's it's funny, especially in sort of the charismatic world where, you know, both you and I are, have our backgrounds um there's this almost a vilification of theology in general like if you're a theologian it's like you have a people look at you like you have a venereal disease or something as baxter kruger says because it's like like you, you just don't trust a theologian they're just in their head right now i'm not a theologian i don't have any letters behind my name i'm not a doctor i need a doctor but we are all theological people. Everybody has a theology, whether they know it or not. Theology is just your perspective of God. And you can have a happy theology or you can have a crappy theology, right? So, so theology is actually a form of repentance because metanoia, the word repentance, means change your mind. And so we should always be having our mind changed by good news and having a better perspective of God well, a more Christ-like picture of God emerging in our minds. I think part of the problem is that we've not had a very Christ-like picture of God. And so we've had a law God, we've had, um, a, you know, this legalistic, maybe again, a fundamentalist or a, a, a Pentecostal or a Catholic or a Lutheran or whatever flavor of God. But, but in reality, um, I, I think what's happening right now is that the things that can be shaken are being shaken, and it's not a bad thing. Um, but where we land, we need to land on Christology, or else we've the pendulum has just swung over from getting out of one ideological, maybe fundamentalist religious camp over into just maybe a more liberal or leftist or whatever. And it's like all of these things are religious if, we're, if if we don't like religion comes in a lot of different flavors right but jesus comes to put an end to religion otherwise um you know what are we what are we doing here right so 100 and i think part of the confusion is and you tell me if you think this too and this is one of the things i really love about you know your books and really everything that you do is that you know, even this deconstruction of our Bible and working through translations of our Bible and how do we even, you know, what are we left with when we understand that there are certain uh, doctrinal slants that make their way into our, into our translations? I mean, so tell me kind of, you have a, a great way of talking about like how Jesus is perfect theology and that even our, even our relationship with the Bible has to be a, a part of our theology and a part of reconstructing and deconstructing the things that don't necessarily look like Jesus. So talk to us a little bit, just even about the foundation of, of our Bibles, um, John. Yeah. Well, I think I've, you know, got my old trusty, old trusty Bible here. One of them got a lot of translations, but um, you know, this, this is a, this is an English Bible, which means it's a paraphrase. Okay, every English translation is a translation. Languages don't fit together like Lego blocks. If you're not reading the original Koine Greek, uh, this is this is a commentary. Okay, so I, I like to start it off with a little something provocative, as, as I say, this is not the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Okay, but I don't end right there. Okay, the, like I will say, these are words of God. Okay, so we don't just throw this out the window. It's it's how do we navigate this? Okay, 
And it is inspired, inspirited to the degree that it points to Jesus. He tells us how to do our hermeneutics. He tells us how to read this. He says, you study this as if, you know, by these letters here, you're gaining eternal life, but they all point to me. We have to have that, again, Christological lens of the scriptures. And the early fathers of the church understood this. And I think there is a big move right now um, with people who are sort of just floating in the air, not wondering like that you're on this deconstruction journey. You, you, you realize like sort of on the, you know, the wizard of Oz thing, the curtain's been pulled back. You realize there's a lot of religious guys pulling levers and collecting ties behind the scenes. And, and so now you're trying to figure out like, okay, so where do we go with this thing? Is truth up for grabs? Uh, what do I do with the scripture? And a, a lot of people are turning back to the ancient faith. You know, we've, we've kind of, realize evangelicalism isn't necessarily the perfect form of Christianity, maybe the same way during the Reformation. They realized at the time the Roman magisterium wasn't the perfect expression of Christianity. Maybe there's something more. So going back to the fathers is really helpful. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing now. There's a, a, a real resurgence in the patristics, the early church fathers and mothers. Well, one of my favorite guys is Maximus the Confessor. And what he says, uh, he says, for every word given by God to man and written down in this present age is a forerunner to the more perfect word. Jesus is the word. He said, whereas the written word possesses an indication of the truth in itself, it does not reveal the truth itself naked and unveiled. And so he, he's talking about, you know, th these are logoi they are words of god jesus christ is the logos he is the word and to the degree that these words are not pointing us to jesus then their words taken out of context the letter kills we know there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of damage done with this over the centuries okay and, and he actually talks about the the risk of idolatry of mm. of just being dominated by the literal text to the degree that we can't see Jesus. Okay. He says a, a person who seeks God with true devotion should not be dominated by the literal text, lest he unintentionally and unknowingly receives not God, but the things that refer to God. That is, lest he feel a dangerous affection for the words of scripture instead of for the word. Now, that's pretty powerful, okay? So should we not read our Bibles? Absolutely, we should read our scriptures. It's how we read it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Jesus, I mean, we could get into how to read the Old Testament, things like that, because mm -hmm. I, I think it's so important that we, we understand the nuance here. For instance, a lot of people, they, they get hold of uh, a revelation of grace, Okay, thank God. Um, Jesus did it all. Um, this is not this is not just a morality club we're a part of. This is about Jesus. And and, and so a lot of times people don't know how to navigate, for instance, the Old Testament. Okay. Mm -hmm. we, we think there's a different God in the Old Testament. And and I don't know if you want to go there. We could let's we could, do it. Could talk let's about do it. That. Yeah, because here's what I find a lot. I mean, you know, you can't be on social media for half a second with the argument always being, but the Bible clearly says. You know, and it's, yeah. it is, it's a nuance, right? It's it, like just yeah. exactly what you're saying. And so I think 
I mean, or, 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 or which is really ironic when people say uh, Paul clear, the, the, a clear <laughs> reading of Paul, like there's a clear reading of Paul. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But then, then those of us that realize that it's like, sometimes we just don't have really good answers. Okay. So what do you do with a, a seemingly genocidal God in uh, the right. old Testament? What, how do we reconcile the, the contradictions that, that you, that you see? Yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, um, you, you know, we, again, we, we have to see, we have to see Jesus. Okay. That there's not some different God, some non Christ like monster in the old Testament. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of times what we'll do is just sort of sweep some of that stuff under the rug, you know, back in the day, I, I know when you and I were younger, there would be um, the Noah's Ark paintings in your, uh, in your Sunday school classroom, you know, it's like, like, let's teach the kids about a genocide of the world here. That's the God we worship, right? And, and it's all pastel colors and stuff. But no, catching a revelation of grace, I think I was saying earlier, it, it doesn't invalidate the Old Testament. What, what it should do is, is enable us to finally read it correctly, mm-hmm. okay? What we call the Old Testament was actually the only, quote, scripture that both Jesus and the early church had. Okay, Jesus and the apostles, they didn't call it the Old Testament. They, they just called it the scriptures. Okay, so, so th- there's inspiration here. But, but it's just how, how, do you, how do you read it? Well, well again, Jesus is not just the one, the one verse that I mentioned earlier, you know, that all the scriptures point to me. He says it over and over. John 5, he says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote of me. And then uh, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And uh, he says, everything that was written about me in the law and in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Uh, it's in Luke uh, 24. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the goal of all scripture. And you could go through, you know, uh, remember Philip in the, the Ethiopian eunuch, right, in the book of Acts. And, um, and the, the eunuch is reading Isaiah. And, and, and the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And then Philip opens his mouth, beginning with this scripture, told them the good news about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, right? Um, here's a fun one. How does Mark open up his gospel. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah. <laughs> he's, he's like, Isaiah is preaching the gospel. So, <clears throat> so I think the thing is when we have these so-called problem passages, genocide, whatever, I, I think the, the, one of the best things we can do is to to maintain nuance, not just jump to some flat exegetical, oh, God killed everybody, or throw that out, that's not God. Um, It's like Robert Capon. He says, uh, don't just sweep everything under the rug in the name of theological tidiness, because sometimes we're inadvertently sweeping a lot of jewelry under the rug. Um, 
do I think that God is literally a violent monster? Absolutely not. Um, I stand with George McDonald on this, you know, like if, if you can't figure out how it fits together with Jesus, I would rather say that he didn't do it than he did do it. If, but, but ultimately it's, it's about where is Jesus in this? And there's also, um, flexibility here. I mean, the- theology is a, is a, is a flexible thing. Holy spirit is working with us in this. Now I'm not saying we just, you know, haphazardly go off on our own personal interpretive quest that there's no absolute you know you know truth but Jesus is the absolute and a, a living truth but um there's flexibility with how we handle certain scriptures and the fathers understood this i mean origin for instance he sees how paul points to the rock in the wilderness and he says that rock is jesus what well, is jesus a mineral deposit like where, where did you come up with that or where Paul says, um, uh, one of his favorite offering uh, messages, do not muzzle the ox when it's treading the grain. You know, Paul was the ox, right? <laughs> feed, feed the ox. And he says it a couple of times. Well, how did he just randomly take this thing that, for all we know, was about agriculture in the Old Testament and then apply it? So metaphorically. And so Origen, you know, really the first systematic theologian of the, you know, the early uh church era, he saw how Paul would take these, these metaphorical ways of, um, of interpretation. And, and, and so origin, origin got really creative with that. And so, you know, he would say, of course, God didn't actually command genocide. What this represents is, is taking down the, 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 the evil passions that we, we wrestle with in, in the land, in the promised land. This is, this, is, this is what it's about. He's taking the kernel, the meaning of Scripture, and he's bringing it uh, in, into this Christological uh, way of seeing. And, and, and so it's not, again, that we can just go haphazard with metaphor. We want to we take care. There are things that are, you know, literal prescriptions, like don't actually murder people, you know, and I'll say, well, that's metaphorical. Or, but there's, there's definitely nuance here. But I think if we just keep it Christological, it just answers, it answers so many of our questions. And, and that's, where, that's where I think in this necessary move of deconstruction of detoxing from religion whatever whatever word we want to use it really is sort of a what the ancients and, and the mystics would have called apophatic theology it's a big five dollar word there it means negative theology it's, it's saying what god is not i think right now we're in a movement where we're realizing oh god is not like that god is not bad god is not his judgment is not vindictive and retributive. But does that mean we just toss his judgment out? No. What if the judge looks like Jesus? Hmm. Well, if the judge looks like Jesus, well, what if his judgments are very real, but they're restorative judgments? What if they're healing judgments? So I I think um, this Christological lens, we don't want in our deconstruction movement to just skip by Jesus. We can't deconstruct Jesus. Um, He is he is the one who came to set our lenses back to the right prescription. So. Yeah, that's so good, John. It's so, so good. And I feel like so many people are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Like, you know, we'd like throw out the whole Old Testament or 
or throw out um, judgment completely or throw out um, just things that don't align with, you don't know how to make sense of it, right? Because God's not angry at sinners, yet it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a problem with sin. So talk about that for a moment, because I know that's kind of an accusation against hyper grace. It's kind of an accusation against those of us that you know, preach a finished work, you know, talk about that because I, I don't know, do you still get that accusation as much as you always have that you're, you know, condoning sin or you're condoning behavior because of grace? I hope I get that accusation because otherwise I'm not preaching the gospel, right? <laughs> uh, because, uh, Mar- you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, uh, he said, if a uh, paraphrase here, if you're preaching the gospel, uh, and, and, and you, it, if you aren't getting accused of preaching license to sin, then you're not preaching the real Pauline gospel, because that's the same accusation that they brought against Paul. It's, he's dealing with it all throughout the book of Romans. Oh, shall we sin? So the grace abounds, you know, um, and then I like the, the, um, Clarence Jordan's cotton patch translation. He answers in, in the beginning of Romans six, hell no, it's very emphatic. Of course, Grace isn't freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin, right? And, and the point of, of God wanting us to be free from sin is not because he's this big schoolmarm in the sky narcissist whose ego is offended by our sin. It, it's not about that. It's, a, it's about he wants us healed from sin as a, as a disease. It's not, he, it's not like he, he wants, he's not into punishing we don't need punishment. We needed a whole new operating system. We, we were, it, it was decaying us. We're hurting ourselves and we're hurting other people. And God is against sin because he loves us. He, he wants to heal and restore his children. And even his wrath, his wrath is not against us. It's against sin itself. The thing that is molesting and destroying his children. And, and he is so hell bent that he <laughs> entered into our hell and, and rescued us from that to the nth degree. And so that's why, that's why God has a problem, not because he's a legalist. God was never a legalist. Okay. Uh, he was never into law. Law was our idea. Okay. <laughs> there's a, you know, there's a one we could go off on in the old Testament there, but, but, but uh, it, it's to, he really, he really came not, and this is, this is the big one, right? Is Jesus died not to pay off an angry father. There's mm-hmm. not some higher, angrier, legalistic deity in the sky that Jesus is twisting his arm so that he'll love us. His love is unconditional. His grace is unconditional. Again, that's Arianism, this idea that Jesus is not really God. There's some other God behind Jesus's back. That's the biggest heresy that we, we still deal with here in the West. Jesus looks like God. The, he, he's the exact image of the Father. He's the representation of the invisible God, perfect image. Jesus actually is God, Christianity 101. He's not saving us from himself. What's the point of the cross? He's saving us from sin and death. Yeah. He's infusing his own divinity into our humanity. He's, he's, there's so much that's happening on the cross. You can't limit the cross to just one little atonement theory. But what we can say is it was absolutely not some penal substitution thing where he's paying off 
this other. So, so that cuts to the, the whole, what about sin thing? Sin, sin is not, you know, ooh, these dirty sinners, I can't look at them, but Jesus is hanging out with mafioso tax collectors and hookers. And you know what I mean? it's, he, he enters in, he becomes sin and brings it to an end to, to a death, but it's to heal us. It's again, restorative. It's a Christ-like version of God. I, I don't know if that uh, got yeah. to the, the meat yeah, of the question there. I was going to talk about penal substitution because I feel like that's a big one right now that people are really trying to wrap their hands around, which also really wrap their heads around. But I also think the wrath of God also is something that people are really deconstructing from, which then of course leads to if the wrath of God is not what we thought it is, well, then what do we do with hell? Right. So again, I, I, you know, I remember you coming to Colorado and saying like, you know, when you get your hands on the gospel, like the real gospel, it's like pulling a a thread on a sweater. And the next thing you know, the whole thing just falls apart. And I think that has, you know, that's why we're seeing, it's like people started with, you know, I think back about it, you know, it's like, you know, the, we had just, there's been like restorative uh, times in, in church history over the last hundred years, right. Where certain things that feel like they're being restored, but now certain things are feel like they're, they're, they're being removed. And so kind of just talk to me about, or talk to us about a little bit about that process of pulling that spring, that string and kind of watching penal mm-hmm. substitution start to come away. And then all of a sudden now we have to deal with what do we think about hell and or what do we think about eschatology? Like it's, it's a, it's, it's definitely a can of worms that pops open. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, that's it. it there's a domino effect. It's like uh, you know, you you take away, you, you you start to you start to pull at that thing, and and you 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 really do realize that in so many ways we've had the ship completely upside down. That's why years ago, um, you know, I was, I'd say, I don't know, at least at least fifteen years ago. I mean, we were we were doing the deconstruction thing hard. We didn't maybe, maybe call it that, but it was just, you know, maybe we'd call it attacking religion or or whatever, but just dismantling him. And, and, and it was like one thing after another, we would go and reinvestigate. But then after a while, I started realizing, you know, you could almost go into a spiral there. Um, and it's a necessary process. And so just be patient with yourself wherever you're at. I'm, I'm not like critiquing the the process and everybody's process is different, but you can almost kind of get stuck the way that maybe back in the eighties and in many parts of South America today, people, people get stuck in the, the uh, deliverance stuff, you know, like everything's a demon and it's like, that'll solve your problems. Just figure out what demon it is. Press the button. Ding, ding. Now you've got a good job. Now your, your marriage is great. We figured out the demon there. Right. And it's like, no, actually there's like things like, maturity and relationship and responsibility and living life. And not everything's just a demon. Well, I think uh, we can do that with the deconstruction thing where we, we see darkness everywhere. All right. And if your eyes full of darkness and all you see is religion and all you see is the problems, um, then your whole body is going to be full of darkness. But if your vision is single, your eyes full of light, your body's going to be full of light. So um, it's not that we don't deconstruct anymore. It's that it's, just like in these deliverance ministries, you can shout at the darkness all day long, or you can turn the light on. And I think the, the same thing is like, so a few years ago, we just, just started sticking with Christology. It was like, man, we just got to go back to the Nicene Creed. Who is Jesus? 
fully God, fully man. He didn't just do it all. He is it all. He is salvation. It's not about my faith. It's about his faith. It's about his perfect obedience. It's about his repentance. Oh, he didn't need repentance. Right. But we did. So he stepped into our place. He bent my humanity right back vicariously to the father. It's all about him. So turn the light on, not just pointing out what's wrong. And there's a place again of going through that. We start to, we need to realize there are some problems out there and there's a good disillusionment to have. But again, not to be a broken record here, but if we turn the light on, we say, hey, let's take another look at Jesus. Mm -hmm. Then then you you get the deconstruction thrown in for free, (laughs) but it's a lot more fun (laughs) because you you have your optimism returns, your joy returns. There's 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 something here. Uh, God is for me. I, I don't have to figure everything out. He is the mystery revealed. And so that's that's where um, I just sort of took a turn a few years ago. I know a lot of people like, what, what happened to Crowder? He just talks about Jesus all the time. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a great, <laughs> I, I don't, Compliment. hopefully will not evolve past that. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's a really good point. I mean, what you're saying there, John, because I do find what happens is, as you get, it's really easy to get offended when in the process. And I find a lot of offense in, um, and I I get it because when you wake up that maybe you grew up in church your whole life and you never really heard the gospel, or maybe you've been chasing the move of God and you find out all of a sudden, wait a minute, God moved in inside of me, that Mm -hmm. there is kind of a, I mean, there's a, I don't know, a kind of a temptation to get angry at, mm-hmm. at the system or get angry at church or get angry at the Western evangelicalism. And, or you just, you, it's really easy to get caught up in that, just seeing what's wrong with everything rather than what's right with everything because of what Jesus did. You know, um, the idea that we live in a reconciled universe versus a hostile universe. I mean, just some basic kind of fundamental paradigm shifts that should be happening as we're deconstructing, but, or as we're detoxing from religion. Um, And so I appreciate that shift. I I appreciate it because just seeing what, what's wrong with everything is, is a really depressing way to live, you know? And so what do we do then with, um, I don't know, how do you, because I've watched your, your ministry, right? I've watched even um, as you've written your books, like kind of like you've, you know, you take a topic and you, you dive down into it. And even lately, like you are, you are tackling some, some more difficult topics. Like you're going into some, you're teaching on revelation at the end of the year. I mean, so do you find it that it's like a, I mean, are you purposeful in what you're picking because people are kind of moving into needing answers about these questions or how are you even how is your own process kind of, how have you, you know, gone through this process yourself and how are you determining how you're leading us through it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, I sometimes probably just Mr. Magoo my way through things and and it just Mm -hmm. happens to be sometimes relevant, sometimes not Mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes I, I will, I do feel like I see something that people really, really need to get hold of, like, like Christology, you see how lacking that is, but people don't even know what that word means. And, and so it's like, you know, it's like trying to give a kid medicine that they don't realize they need. 
or contemplation, like how starved we are for contemplation, especially in today's multimedia society, just social media, angry news, talking heads, just, just uh, you know, all the political fighting and just noise and the interior noise. Now, so, so I, I think sometimes I'll sense a need and then I, it's like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe other people, maybe other people need this too. Oh, what, what if we relook at some of these difficult passages like the book of Revelation through a Christological lens? And so, uh, sometimes I just kind of follow my own sniffer, maybe like a, a little truffle pig. I just something that's interests me. Um, I greedily will start digging into it. And then I realize, oh, wow, this is uh, a lot of people could be helped with this. So that that sort of um, is maybe maybe my process. And, um, and yeah, I, I think, um, you know, what you were saying about uh, a lot of people dealing with the frustrations of maybe they came out of an evangelical background. It, it is easy to get a chip on our shoulder. I think the thing that is probably lends the most to that is not just a frustration with what we were taught, but when we do sort of begin to see past some of these, let's just for better use of a term, call them religious constructs, um, I think the thing that can get us into bitterness the most um, is is really when other people start to attack us personally for thinking differently, because we all have friends from church who got concerned, you know, because we started to uh, believe a little differently, especially about grace or something like that. And that's where I think um, um you know, I, I mean, I've had years where I, I knew I, I needed to work through that. And I would see other people kind of spinning off the rails because of that, just that bitterness and that, that, that anger, you know, to just to bring it back to that point that you're mentioning there. And um, I think there's a place for polemics. There's some people do it really well, like our argument, arguing for, for the truth and standing up, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I've definitely had my um, Martin Luther moments where, you know, I'm just feel like cussing like a sailor, like Martin Luther. But but now I'm, I'm trying to move more into a, a Mr. Rogers um, phase of life. It's not always easy to make that transition because sometimes, you know, you just you have to explode a little bit. So I, I'm sort of this strange for me, the strange, ironic paradox of uh, Luther and 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 a uh, Fred Rogers. Hopefully, I uh, am more like Fred Rogers. Uh, one of my favorite mystics, though, and, and church fathers, um, Isaac of Nineveh, Nineveh. He said, "If if you're if you're contentious for the truth, that you don't really believe the truth. There's something about getting settled in the goodness of God. And it's not that we don't stand up at times. Paul stood up at times. Jesus stood up, right? But I think for the most part, like there's this peace when we realize, hey, Jesus has finished this whole thing." Um, he's with everybody on their journey where they're at. He will even bless ridiculous worship songs that he didn't initiate the theology of. He will bless people where they're at along the way. Um, and so I think having patience with others, having patience with ourselves is really key. And I think as we, um, and this is where contemplation maybe helps as well. 
But um, yeah, yeah, just 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 really um, settling in. Like if, if Jesus really finished the job here, um, we don't want to take our say rabid. Say you were a five point Calvinist or something. I've seen people take that rabid cage stage, angry Calvinistic argumentation style. And then they get maybe a more inclusive grace thing. And then, but they still have that angry package that they're trying to, you can't just shove grace down people's throat, right? You, uh, grace doesn't sell. You can't even give it away. Right? It's, it's So it's free. So um, letting people be where they're at, I think is helpful. And that's difficult as an evangelical because we were raised to uh, force feed people our ideology and knock on doors like a vacuum cleaner salesman and an obnoxious, you know, um, uh, peddling the gospel. And, that. and so to realize, hey, wait, God's in control here. It's not that we don't speak, but how we speak. Uh, honey's going to honey's going to maybe mm-hmm. be a little more. I'm, I'm salty, so I'm working on it. Yeah. Working on the honey. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that you're more Mr. Rogers like than you give yourself credit for. I, I I think especially, you know, social media has a, you know, there's always an interpretation and always like, a you know, people get so triggered on social media. But I, I think one of the reasons I love the conversation we're having is that it's 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 because you do when you get to know you, John, like you are a teddy bear, you know, even though your gospel is strong, it's kind of like with Paul's letters, you know, it's like my words are strong in this letter, but, you know, I, you know, it's not it's because the gospel needs to be preached, you know, but at the end of the day, love is really the, the point of yeah. all of it. And if the gospel yeah. that we are deconstructing into like we're really deconstructing into something we're deconstructing into christ then yes yes, there's grace for our process but i know for me it's not that i haven't gotten angry at the things that i've been taught but i think the the fruit of grace should be that you have grace for everybody else that's still believing the things they were taught (laughs) you know and i do want to shift a little bit into contemplation because I think sometimes that gets lost in deconstruction, right? Because we do, it's like all of a sudden we do want good theology and we are distrustful of the things that we've been taught and we want to, we want to get it right. We don't want to be deceived. And we kind of can miss the beauty of the whole point of all of it, which is the presence of God, which is what the God really ultimately gives us, right? Is this incredible place where we are fully loved, fully accepted right now, right this moment, right or wrong theology, whether we know it or not, you know, it's well, like, you know, yeah. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but just going back to what you said earlier about wrath, it's like, uh, well, that that's, that's, that's wrath. There's a place for wrath, right? But, but it's, there's a difference between the wrath of an executioner and the wrath of a father. And God is love. And, and so he's, he's, he's angry at these things within us that are resistant to love because we, and, and so, yeah, just, just to, just to throw that in with what you're saying there. I mean, yeah. And it's, you know, I love what Richard Rohr says. He calls it the third way. And I, I mm. really love what Richard Rohr talks about because it's like in, in, you know, he has contemplation and action. They're kind of, you know, you sometimes you think they're two sides of the coin. Like you're either in contemplation and you're just hanging out all day in the presence of God, or you're actively pursuing uh, 
justice in the world against injustice. But I think I like the way he talks about the third way because it kind of speaks to the the polarity that you're describing. Like it's not right, it's not left, it's not right, it's not wrong. Like there is there there is a place where Jesus is always standing which is on yeah, the yeah. side of the accused, on the side of oppression, of the oppressed, on the side of us, really. I mean, you know, and so talk to me a little bit about, for me, I know contemplation in the presence of God has been uh, really the transformative, I mean, the, the transformation of the gospel. And because the, to me, the gospel was the door, right? That led me, I mean, Jesus is the door, but the gospel is is Jesus, right? So it's this door that leads you into the experience of God, which is kind of the point of theology, if you ask me, you know? Yeah. 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 Because uh, theology and, you know, maybe, I don't know if the word would trigger people, but but mysticism, which is a biblical, you know, Christian church history word, uh, which is more, what are you saying, experiential, um, um, Theology and mysticism are not supposed to be at odds. Um, for instance, another early father, uh, Evagrius Ponticus, he says, um, if, if you're truly a theologian, you pray. And if you pray, you're a theologian. Now, how, what did he mean by pray? He's not saying like, you know, just go begging God all the time, the way that we sort of do in these you know, house of prayer type constructs in the charismatic world of like, you know, just pleading and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, it, what he says also, he defines prayer. He says, prayer is the laying aside of thoughts. Okay. So if you're a true theologian, then you need to know how to lay aside thoughts. You're not clinging to ideas and concepts, which are always going to be limited, which to some degree are always going to be idolatrous. And this is where people don't realize guys like Luther, guys like Karl Barth, who were great reformed type theologians, they these guys were mystics in that sense because they were also very apophatic, negative. They're saying this isn't God. This isn't God. Martin Luther would say uh, he came against what he called the theology of glory. He's not against the glory, but like the idea that you can just um, figure out the the unseen glory of God or whatever. No, he says you only get a theology of the cross, what God himself has revealed in Jesus. And so that's a very mystical thing, honestly. People would say, because Luther did seem to come against mysticism, but he was shaped by mystics. And he got there by realizing, hey, there's there's mystery here that is beyond our human comprehension. But he didn't stop there. He pointed to the cross. It's Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the revelation. But again, going back to Maximus, Maximus says that Jesus, he is the mystery revealed, but he's nevertheless the mystery. Um, the the uh, transfiguration, he's, he says Jesus is the, we see that Jesus alone is the source of this, this light on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, but in seeing him, we realize that he is the source of something that is absolutely beyond our human comprehension, but it's him. The one who is beyond all thought has become flesh, has made himself tangible, touchable, real, and yet he's still ineffable, beyond all comprehension. And that is the awe that you can't generate, that you can't fabricate with a light show and a, and a guitar session in church, right? Uh, awe and wonder are what we're craving. That's what we're, we're missing right now mm -hmm. is wonder. 
this is great Robert Capon quote about that. He says, the biggest problem with the church today is not MTV and pornography and abortion and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's the lack of awe, the lack of wonder. And that's what contemplation is, is taking the time to uh, just sit and to, and to, to lose ourselves in him, to let our thoughts go. It's not, you know, we have all these misconceptions about contemplation because Unfortunately, the church is so broken apart and divided. There's great teachings, contemplative teachings out there, but they tend to be more from Eastern Orthodox or uh, Roman Catholic Cistercian, Trappist, Thomas Merton, guys like that. Um, Martin Laird, great guy. Uh, but in the charismatic world, we get a little, you know, we get bits like soaking. You know, we had soaking back in the day, which was just, but that was guided meditations where people are telling you what to think. We, we've We've lost um silence real silence and that is what we need the most right now and we're afraid of silence because if we're not filling the the atmosphere every space every pause between words if we aren't filling it with something we think silence is absence and it goes back to our separation mentality that is the core of all religion, that is the very thing that God came to deconstruct in Jesus. There is no separation. Silence is not separation. Silence is not absence. Silence is a, a cistern of presence. He fills all things. And in the noise and the confusion that we have inside in our own inner dialogues and, and chatter that we repeat to ourselves to deal with situations over and over that go back to our trauma and our, you know, whatever it may be, the psychological, just, just uh, material that's going on in there. If, if we don't learn to hold that stuff open-handedly, then we identify with that stuff. We, uh, that's who I am. And that's not who you are. Those are weather patterns that, that blow through. It's, a, it's learning to just let those thoughts go by like a sushi belt. And we begin to engage with God at a place that's beyond mere thought. It's what, what, what Maximus would call perfected reason, which is not just intellectability. Okay. We have these misapprehensions. Contemplation is not forcing your thoughts out. You, you can't do that. Uh, Martin Laird calls your mind a cocktail party. It's always going on in there. The Buddhists, they call it the monkey mind. You can't shut your mind down. As Christians, we know your mind is part of your God-created self. Your mind is wonderful. It's just not living out of the confusion of it. And so contemplation is a practice where we actually disengage. We learn not to cling to thoughts. We, we, we cultivate an appreciation for quiet for silence. And there really is what you could call the practice of the presence of God that begins to come out of that, where we, we get acclimated more to his presence than just the stuff that's fluttering around upstairs. Um, I know I'm whipping out all of these my wife makes fun of me. I whip out all these random uh, names of people from the fourth century or whatever. There was a medieval monk named Theophan the Recluse. <laughs> Great name. Um, he said, God should be with you like a toothache. <laughs> now, 
<laughs> that's not necessarily a, a a great analogy for us. We don't think of that as a pleasant thing. But uh, Cynthia Bourgeau talks, you know, brings that point up a lot that that God we get we get acclimated to His presence when we slow down, when we take time to be still. We don't just fill everything with our cell phone. Wake up in the morning, first thing we do, look at the cell phone. Have our day just dictated to us with other people's problems and issues, and and just as we take that time, uh, there's something sensate. There's something that that resonates of His presence with us, and and taking time to pull aside. Now, guys, I mean, you know, everybody who's listening to this, I doubt many monks are listening to this. I know that people don't have eight hours a day to sit in a cave in silence. So I'm talking about. But we could take 20 minutes. We could we could take a little bit of time to just, you know, it's not forcing thoughts out. It's, it's having rest from those thoughts. It's not being led around like a bit. We are just longing for rest and being with him. So the gospel is not just a little theological ticket that gets punched of like, okay, you know, I get union now, so I'll move on. No. Okay, you have union with Jesus. Yeah, you get that. No, you don't really get that yet. It's true, but upstairs, you don't get it. And in your heart, this is something we sink into, not making union happen, but unpackaging and realizing the union that we already have. It's like if we've been given these gifts at Christmas, but we don't take time to enjoy them, to open them up as a kid, they're just sitting there. And, and so often that's what the gospel is for us. Maybe we start to get a revelation of grace and we it touches us and we, we recognize it's true and the spirit attests to that because the spirit's always pointing us to Jesus and Jesus finished the job. But then we just move on and it's back and let's argue about it over face on Facebook. No, there's, there's something about actually feasting on this one who, as we begin to gaze at him, which is the, really what the Greek word for contemplation is theoria is gazing then when we see him we'll be like him now we already look like him in the truth of our being in our ontology you are in the image of god but we also want the way of our being to match the truth of our being when i argue with my wife over the dishes the way of my being is not matching with the truth of my being and so it's not about behavior modification it's about slowing down to know who we really are. And knowing who we really are doesn't come through self-discovery. It comes through looking at Jesus Christ, who is the one in whose blueprint my true self has been created. There is no separate self. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's so critical. Again, and I think where Christology and contemplation merge that's the intersection that I've been at for a long time. And I think if it goes way back, it's it's where the charismatic experience and real theology should be at. So uh, I would just uh, encourage everybody, take the time, um, slow down, and enjoy him. And, and moreover, um, be enjoyed by him. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about, <clears throat> I feel like it's almost like a, a consciousness or an awareness, John, that it's almost like it has to be cultivated because we are so inundated. And so I know yes. you've got a course coming up just here in a few weeks, I think, about contemplation. So how can people get connected to what you're doing and learn more about this? Because it's life-changing. 
Yeah, uh, well, it's coming up this weekend. I'm not sure when when our uh, recording here will be going out, um, um, but it's uh, it's kind of a little a little maybe you could almost call it a primer course because it's just like a three day thing uh, on contemplation. We actually have a longer. We did like a um, twelve session. I mean, we went really systematic and deep and covered a lot of stuff. It's very good for folks who maybe. Um, Maybe they have some experience with contemplative practice. Maybe they're new. Maybe it's like foreign to them. Maybe they Googled contemplation and some heresy hunter evangelical hack said that you're going to open yourself to demons or something if you learn to be quiet. <laughs> you know, this is crazy. Everything's a demon, right? Um, but but um, for folks that just really want to understand that the, this ancient really, really form of prayer, it's, it's learning to be prayer, right? We are a prayer. Your life is a prayer. We are a fragrant aroma of Christ unto God. Prayer is not something we do. It's something that we are in our relations, in our work, in our, you know, mowing the lawn. We are prayer. Um, anyway, so we've got a longer uh, course on contemplation. It's called Sacred Mystery. Course on Contemplation is 12 sessions long. It's all recorded now. We, we've already completed that one. Um, I would encourage folks, if you get that, though, just take it one session at a time. Don't binge through it. It's not a Netflix series. Um, take time because we give a lot of practical exercise, application kind of stuff, something I don't normally do in a lot of my teachings. I just kind of am layering theology. But this one, uh, we go through things like Lectio Divina, like reading uh, scripture meditatively. Uh, I'm sure most folks are familiar with that kind of stuff, but we really dive into that. Things like the Jesus prayer, these just ancient um, practices that help us, right? It's not about formulas and it's not about levels and it's not about stages. And that's one of the big misapprehensions we have to get out of the way when it comes to contemplation, because it's not about acquiring like acquiring this spiritual thing. I've got to get contemplation under my belt. No, no, that's not it at all. It's a, it's a relationship and you don't acquire and, and arrive in relationships. So that's, that's really the sim, simple thing. Uh, anyways, all of that, um, you can find it on my website, uh, johncrowder.net. Go to our e-courses and we, we've got a longer e-course on Christology too, if, if folks are interested in that and, uh, and church history, drunk church history, we call it. So, cause it's, uh, fun. anyway. It's awesome. Well, I love this, John. I mean, I think initially that's how I got attracted to you. I still remember I was reading the ecstasy of loving of God of loving God, which is probably still one of my favorite books about you. I feel like you just can just read about three pages and you're just kind of like, whoa, gone. Um, but I remember I was reading it and I, I Facebook messaged you because I was like, you didn't know me from Adam. And I was like, you're coming to Colorado. This is back when I lived in Colorado because I was just reading it. And I, you know, the satisfaction it, that's the only place that's really found, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I'll say this, cause I talked to a lot of people that have a ton of questions and I wanted to do this podcast today because deconstruction is such a hot topic and people are always pressing me about what do you believe about this? And what do you believe about this? And what do you believe about that? And a lot of times I have to say, I don't know, I'm in my own process, you know, I yeah. mystery around this for me, but here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is with me, Jesus is in me and that I'm perfectly loved and that he never leaves me. And he doesn't really even care what I think about those things. You know, at the end of the day, me having my right theology is not what matters. What really matters is that um, he knows me and that I get the privilege of getting to know him. And so I love the stuff on contemplation and I love what you said. And I love what you said about theology and contemplation. The, the intersection of that is 
is is really kind of where we should end up really with with deconstruction. So what other do you have any final thoughts for everybody today about anything that we've talked about or you know final thoughts about the practice of the presence of God or contemplation or anything really? I actually do have a final thought. Just as you were saying that, I I was uh, looking up this Thomas Merton prayer that really it's a very famous Merton prayer, but it's something that that uh, just arrested me way back in the day. I was probably nineteen twenty years old, and I was uh, just sort of back then just deconstructing like charismatic movement stuff was uh, like, and I. And I was in a really confused place. And a lot of people, it's like, I don't know what to do with the things that I've been taught over the years. And I don't, um, I don't know where I'm going. And this is where I think sort of maybe if we could put a bow on what we've been talking about a little bit, um, this is where contemplation is helpful because we can sit with God, even if we don't have it all figured out. And really, contemplation is again not forcing thoughts out; is is holding them op- holding those thoughts open handedly, and, and and just sinking back into the love of Christ. And uh, so, I'll, I'll just end with this um, this little prayer of his, if I could. Um, very famous. He says, "My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself." And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. I will not fear. For you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Wow, that's perfect. It's so perfect. I think that's a perfect prayer for where we are, you know, where so many of us are. And even just as, you know, as leaders, as teachers, as as people that are, you know, called to help others through this process, I think that to me, my last 10 years has probably been about losing control. It's really been about letting go of certainty, (laughs) you know? And so I think that's a beautiful way to summarize that up is that we don't have to have certainty. We don't have to know um, because we're known. Yeah. So that's John. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today and your incredible uh, Bible words and all of your uh, random uh, mystics that your wife, Lily, so uh, lovingly jokes uh, makes fun of you for, but it's so good, John. I'm so thankful for you you, to the body of Christ. And I know that I'm not alone in thinking that. So thank you so much. Appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Shalise's podcast. This recording is in part made possible by our listeners to partner with us. Visit Shalise.com where you can donate and help us spread the good news of our unshakable union with Christ around the globe. You can also find a link there to download Shalise's book, The Path, for free. And if you're ready to discover the call of God on your life and the purpose he created you for, then visit us at Shalise.com and watch Shalise's free training where you'll hear five keys to hearing God about your life purpose and transitioning into it. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, don't forget, 
The world needs the Christ in you.